Blog Talk Radio. Peterson, 
but I'm not going to take the approach that because I admire him and I see him as an ally in the cause of individualism and the battle for free speech, I'm not going to therefore withhold all criticism of the book either. So what you're going to hear here is me just trying to be as objective as, as possible about it. I think that there's a lot of value in this book. I would recommend that you read the book. I have been posting on my social media just little excerpts of my markings, you know, in the book, like I'm highlighting and putting little marginalia and stuff like that. And I've been posting that. And the places that in the book, you know, where I select the little excerpts to post are places where I have the most to say, which is going to be of the nature of philosophical criticism. I don't want anybody to take away from that the idea that you can't get good things out of this book. I'm getting quite a bit out of this book. I'm going to share some with you today. So on the one hand, I am not at all sympathetic, as I said last time, to the people who look at some of the things that Peterson says, you know, says in the book philosophically. You know, one person said something like, well, it's a bunch of BS. Where's that from? No, no, no. Um, you know, this man, again, he I, he's an ally in the cause of the fight for individual rights. He um, is also an ally in the cause for free speech. And he also provides just a ton of value in terms of psychological advice for people out there on the Internet. And as I said last time as well, it's advice that resonates with me. So I'm not sympathetic to that. On the other hand, yes, I'm going to come in and criticize the philosophical foundation. And part of the motivation for that is that I think there are a number of people who are going to look at this book and say, wow, I really do like the advice in there, but boy, this other stuff that's in there, the philosophy, I find it sort of confusing. Maybe I don't agree with it. Is there some other way to integrate all the good stuff that he provides in this book without necessarily accepting his particular philosophical foundation. And that's my goal personally as well, because as I said, I found a lot of this advice to resonate. Does this advice depend necessarily on the foundation that he articulates in the book? I would like to think no. I mean, as I've gone through so far, I've seen that I could integrate the advice and the evidence that he provides into my own philosophical framework, which for those of people who aren't very familiar, I consider myself an objectivist. I'm a follower of Ayn Rand's philosophy. And so, yes, I'm an atheist, which, you know, he would actually try to tell me, no, you're not an atheist. You think you are. We'll get to that, um, et cetera. So that's my overall framework. Um, in terms of, you know, this kind of, you know, saying, okay, you can't get anything out of Peterson. And if you if you're an objectivist, if you are an atheist, if you're a follower of Rand's philosophy, how is it that you think you can learn something from this person who has such a radically different foundation? Uh, some people criticize his methodology as well, but I'd like to see a little bit more of that before I comment on it. Um, but you know, obviously, his foundation we're gonna we're gonna get to the essence of it. But for me, I am going to follow Peterson in you know, a, a couple different ways, right? So, and I think the, the ways that I'm following Peterson are going to answer both things. You know, first of all, he has this rule. And this rule says that anybody that you're in a conversation with, you should treat that person as someone 
who knows something that you need to know. That's one formulation of it. And, uh, you know, some, that they have something to teach you. And if, and if you listen well enough, then maybe you can get that person to tell you the thing it is that you need to know and you can learn it and you can benefit from it. This is good stuff. Um, now, I did a little meme, one of those Peterson Newman memes on this because people were saying, oh, well, he, you know, his philosophy is wrong, so therefore it's a bunch of BS and dismiss it. And I made the point on the part of the Newman character in the meme, right? So Peterson says, you know, I, when I'm speaking with someone, I treat this person as if it's somebody who knows something that I need to know. And then uh, Newman comes back and says, oh, so what you're saying is that you are suffering, you know, you feel a severe lack of basic knowledge and you have no firm philosophical beliefs. And of course, that's not what he says, right? He is just putting out there, imagine, that you can learn from somebody that doesn't share your philosophical foundation, that you could actually learn some things, even though there are some basic principles that you disagree about. If that wasn't the case, then how in the world could Aristotle learn from Plato? And Right? So, yes, I do that. On the other hand... There's a number of people, and I've heard that there's this is true among objectivists too. There's a number of people who are fans of Peterson and who think, well, you shouldn't criticize him at all. You shouldn't articulate your disagreements with him because, I mean, again, here's this guy. He's this ally in the fight, and in effect, you don't want to undermine the fight. I think a lot of the same sort of thinking is, you know, don't criticize Trump too. And particularly with respect to Peterson, at least, I am operating within his own framework, one of the rules that he articulates where he says, no, you should stand up for yourself. You should articulate those things about which you have a disagreement. If you think, for example, that it's going to serve you best to benefit from and integrate this advice and information into your life while denying the philosophical framework that's at the bottom of it and, and you know trying to integrate it into your own framework that's the thing that you should do you should speak the truth as you see it this is something that peterson himself says so i'm operating as i see it within the spirit of peterson i am both treating him as somebody who knows some things that i need to know and then at the same time i am speaking up and articulating my disagreements with him so that's my overall approach uh, what I want to do is get into the rules. Um, you know, last time I talked about his overall framework is that he's trying to carve this path for individualism that is neither on the one hand this nihilism, which would be just the abandonment of all ideas and philosophy, and then on the other hand, slavish adherence to an ideology, some sort of authoritarian framework that would lead to tyranny. So he wants to fight tyranny on the one hand, but he wants to reject what has historically been the only possible alternative to tyranny and authoritarianism, which is nihilism. That's his goal. And so he's got the rules. Uh, what I want to do for each of the rules that I discuss, and I've got my notes more organized this time around this, I want to give you a summary of the chapter for each rule, including the type of advice that he gives. 
then also discuss philosophical issues that I have with the presentation in the chapter and then talk about the advice that I'm taking away from it or how it is that I reconceptualize the foundation of the advice that he's giving the justification for the advice that he's giving. That's my goal. If you know, you feel like I'm not being clear about it, which is quite possible. Um, then go ahead. Actually, I forgot to tell you the second part of the reason that I can't last for two hours today, which is that as a result of that discussion with your own last night, I think, and then also I had got woken up by some noise. I could not sleep. So you're looking at somebody who's got two hours of sleep in her as well. So it is quite possible that I um, are going to, you know, that I'm going to maybe skip over something and not do all of those three things that I have a goal to do with respect to each chapter. You can call in, of course you can call in and comment. Um, if you'd like to go ahead and call in and comment, the number is 760-888-5817. You may also leave comments in the blog talk radio chat room. And I'm trying to watch the comments over on the Facebook live video as well two hours of sleep, I might not be as coordinated with all these things as normal, but I'm going to try to do it. So let me go through, as I said, with the, you know, kind of the summary, the philosophical issues and the advice for the each chapter, I'm going to do a very brief run through with rule one and then get on with the other rules. Rule two, last time I didn't think I did a very good job with it. Rule one, I did a decent job, I thought, but I didn't really organize it around those three goals. So we'll do a brief recap. Uh, rule one, as everybody knows, it's the lobster rule. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. There's only so much I can do of that while I'm sitting here uh, looking at my notes. But he says that we have in common with lobsters that he talks about, and he talks about birds as well and how they survive, that he, we have this part of our brain that keeps track of our position in something he calls, and it's not just he that calls it, it's a whole literature, the dominance hierarchy. And if you go to page 16 in the book, he talks about it. He says, there's an ancient part of your brain. He says, the ancient part of your brain specialized for assessing dominance watches how you are treated by other people. On that evidence, it renders a determination of your value and assigns you a status. If you are judged by your peers as of little worth, the counter restricts serotonin availability. Okay, so this is where it becomes a physiological Thing about you. He says this you know, restriction of serotonin availability, he says that makes you much more uh, physically and psychologically reactive to any circumstance or event that might produce emotion, particularly if it is negative. So this is something about us. Moreover, so not only does this exist, right? It's keeping track of your status all the time. He says, moreover, it can go wrong. It's susceptible to malfunction. If you have poor sleep, here I am today, and poor diet. My diet today was, you know, okay. I was a little tired, so I wasn't feeding myself as well either, right? So what do you do at least to prevent the malfunction of this mechanism that's built into you? You need a routine. So he recommends you wake up at the same time every day. Of course, it's better if you go to sleep somewhere around the same time too, but he says it's even more important wake up at the same time every day. And if you're, when, you know, when you're having breakfast, don't load up on carbs. Don't go have a donut, have fat and protein and restrict the carbs. Because if you have this sugar crash, then 
psychologically, that's going to put you at a deficit. So you need to get your physiology in gear. So at least this thing that you're saddled with, this ancient part of your brain that is doing the dominance hierarchy thing, it is going to function properly. Now, as to doing the best that you can, given this mechanism that we have, this serotonin mechanism that we share with the lobsters, he talks about the fact that you can either have bad habits that feed into what's called a positive feedback loop. It's called positive just because it keeps going in that direction. So your bad habits can make your life worse, make you do worse and worse things. Uh, But you could, of course, choose to establish good habits and create a positive feedback loop in that direction. In terms of bad habits, he talks about damage that's caused people by bullying that they experience. So they end up having, I guess, you know, this negative self-image that perpetuates it. Um, There's other things, too. He talks about agoraphobia and stuff. You can read it. Uh, But he says, what can you do? You can rise from these positive feedback loops that happen because of bullying that you're subjected to or other things in your life. And in particular, he talks about this need to skillfully integrate your ability to respond to aggression. You know, it's important for you to stand up to yourself. So if you go to page 24 of his book, uh, he's got a couple of great segments here where he talks about how tyranny, he says the forces of tyranny will expand inexorably to fill the space made available for their existence. So you need to muster, he says, appropriately self-protective territorial responses. Um, And if you don't do that, if you don't choose to do that when you can do it, then you are going to leave yourself open to exploitation, he writes, and I'm quoting again from him now. He says, as much as those who genuinely can't stand up for their own rights, because there's two options, right? You can't because physically you're just not capable, but then there are people who would be capable, but then they choose not to. And he says, important not to be that person. Uh, Bottom of page 24, the willingness of the individual to stand up for him or herself protects everyone from the corruption of society, something that's important. Now, what is it that you are supposed to do? He talks about, you know, uh, dealing with PTSD patients who have perhaps been soldiers serving overseas and they are traumatized by the things that they encountered and the things that they had to do. And he talks about that they see within themselves because they, for instance, had to kill somebody when they were in the line of duty, they see within themselves, quote, seeds of evil and monstrosity. And he says they come to realize they are terrible too. And what is he recommending? He recommends that you skillfully integrate this ability to respond to aggression. Um, And on 25, he says there's very little difference between the capacity for mayhem and destruction integrated and strength of character. So this is what you should try to do. You should be able to integrate this ability that is, you know, within so many of us to be able to do this. And if you express it properly, you'll stand up for yourself and you will avoid tyranny and exploitation, not just for yourself, but, but for everybody. 
Um, yeah, and then the, another thing that he talks about is in this chapter that your emotion, that your emotional state can be amplified via the appropriate bodily expression. And this is where the stand up straight with your shoulders back comes in because he says that, you know, if you do this, then it is going to automatically start to make you feel as if you're somebody who will stand up for yourself. Uh, So he encourages everybody to stand up that you have to voluntarily accept what he calls the burden of the quote, terrible responsibility of life. He suggests that what you do is you create a positive feedback loop that will put you in a better position in the dominance hierarchy. And again, that has two elements. It has the element of doing whatever you can to make sure that that mechanism doesn't malfunction. And then also working within that mechanism to help your body get into a positive feedback loop where you're going to have more serotonin and all of that stuff, right? Because what is the issue again? The issue is the restriction of serotonin is going to put you in this state where you're not as likely to stand up for yourself. So that's the general advice. That's what it means by, you know, be like a lobster, stand up straight with your shoulders back. What are the philosophical problems he has in this chapter hints at determinism? And I talked about this last time on pages 14 to 15. Uh, For example, I read you a little bit of his language. He says this part of the brain that keeps track of our position in the dominance hierarchy, he says it's a master control system modulating our perceptions, values, emotions, thoughts, and actions. It powerfully affects, which is not quite determinism, but it hints of it. So it powerfully affects every aspect of our being. Um, So that's one problem is the hint at determinism. Another issue that I saw was the soldiers, the soldiers who are suffering from PTSD. Are they really terrible Um, Is what they're integrating actually terribleness? You know, this ability to, if you need to, defend yourself physically, to use physical force in order to defend yourself or to defend others in the cause of justice, is that something that you would want to call terrible? There's, you know, this idea that it's it's this dark thing within you that's going to to save you. To me, it just seems too judgmental, too negative. Um, The other thing that I had a question about, and and we could talk about this, if people, like I said, you want to call in and you want to ask a question, some people, there's actually just one person on hold over at Blog Talk Radio. If you do want to ask a question or make a comment, you hit the one key, and then I'll be able to see the question icon. Again, if on two hours of sleep, I'm properly attentive, and I'll I'll get you on the air with me. so the third thing is that stuck out at me is this issue of dominance. Is with with human beings, is it appropriate to speak of a dominance hierarchy, right? You could say, okay, well that's right in lobsters. And you could say, okay, you know, if I go back to that passage on page 16 where it talks about you being of little worth and everything else, is you know, is this so much an issue of dominance? versus just you seeing yourself as a valid, productive member of society who has something to offer of value to other people. 
putting it in terms of, of dominance and, you know, I guess submission or whatever, it wouldn't be the way that I would talk about it maybe in the context of human beings. I think that there's something about human beings that are, that are different, you know, that's, that's different. And yeah, you could say, okay, we have as human beings inherited this serotonin restricting mechanism through evolution. And it's something that we have in common with the lobsters, but at the same time for us, is it an issue of assessing dominance or is it an issue of assessing our ability to provide things of value to people in the world that we would either like to trade with or have good relationships with or anything like that? That's the other thing that jumped out at me. And I didn't talk about that last time, but I, as I was going back through, that was another um, thought that I had. So what's the advice, right? I would say still that this concrete advice is good. You want to sleep properly. I can't, I'm going to beat myself up all day about this. Um, you want to sleep properly. You want to have the proper diet. You want to stand up for yourself. You want to use the tools of physical posture to the extent that physical posture can help you create a positive feedback loop and, you know, use that to get yourself going and to do things that are going to make you feel better about yourself and then make, you know, the fake it till you make it sort of thing. Yes, you want to do this. Um, you can't just fake it all the time, but you can help yourself using this knowledge about the way that our body works, our physiology works, the way our psychology works. Good. Um, if you exercise, yeah, you, you, all these things, the things that he's talking about, what I would say is, yeah, they can make your exercise of free will more difficult. It is more difficult to bring your emotions along for the ride with what you know is right. For example, if you are tired or, you know, you haven't had the proper food to eat. I know for me personally, if like I, for instance, at Starbucks, they have that drink that I've only had, I think once or twice in my whole life, because I just can't do it. They have the Frappuccino, any Frappuccino that has sugar in it. I can never have that thing because it just, chew. I get this crash. And when I get a sugar crash, oh my gosh, I cannot think clearly. I don't even trust myself to drive. It's, I mean, it's crazy. So no, you know, you put yourself in the optimal state to make it as easy as possible to exercise your free will. You don't give yourself, you know, huge decisions to make while you're tired at the last thing at night or something like you're not going to be at your optimal. Um, nonetheless, right. We have this free will. And the whole predication of him giving advice in the first place is that there is the ability to take this advice, to perceive the effects of acting on that advice, to know when it's working, to be self-aware of, of how we're feeling and all of this. This is a real thing. Um, the lobster can't take advice. Right? We can take advice. So we are very different from the lobster. So to the extent, I think you can definitely integrate this advice from chapter one. It's pretty simple. You can integrate it without accepting any of the implications about determinism. Like I said, he didn't outright say we're determined, but throughout the book, he talks about our consciousness and our ability to reason being limited by various things in our natures and our psychologies things that have been around for millennia, right? So we, we can still integrate this. We could say, no, we, we can take this advice. We can do this. We can do these things to optimize our physiology. We can work within this serotonin delivery 
mechanism and improve our lives. And it's good advice, but it doesn't have to be on the foundation that we have to be horribly skeptical about the faculties that we've been given. And um, the other thing is, like I said, we don't have to have it in our mind that it's a dominance hierarchy and that you want to be dominant. You just want to go out there and produce value the very best that you can and offer it to the world. And you want to feel confident that you have value to, to do that. And yes, you're going to, I guess, automatically judge based on the reactions that you get from other people. It's going to make you feel better or worse about yourself. And you're going to tend to, you know, have the submissive posture and all the things that he talks about. But it, I don't, again, see it as an issue of dominance versus not. It's an issue of you being, you know, being aware of this mechanism and working within it to the best of your ability to um, increase your self-esteem. I don't see it as any different in principle as recognizing, for example, to use an example out of Leonard Picasso's Opar, which I'll pull out maybe after a couple chapters more. Um, Leonard Picasso's Opar, where he says, you know, yeah, the stick in water. The stick in water, it looks bent when it's in the water, but that doesn't mean that our senses are invalid. It means that you are seeing not only the stick, but you are perceiving the effects of the sunlight and the water and everything else on the way that the stick looks when it's in the water. I mean, it would be worse. You know, you stick the stick in the water and it looks straight. Um, That would be a worse scenario because then you aren't seeing the refractory effects of the water and the sunlight and everything else. Um, There is a purpose for the mechanism that we have. Now you'd say, okay, in a lot of times in modern life, what we should be doing is overriding some of the, mechanisms that are there we maybe have to you know fight a little bit this idea of having a fight or flight response that's active all the time can stress you out so but being aware of it and being able to take advice about it is something that is uniquely human and i think we can take that into account now so that's rule one let me go here do people have oh so people are hearing an echo a little bit of an echo. You know, you might be hearing the echo because there could be a slight delay into my headphones and the microphone might be picking up a little bit of my headphones. And I don't know if I if I put my head a different way, whether that effect would be reduced. I'll have to listen to the audio later and get my own sense of it. Any questions, comments? No, nobody on that. Okay, so let's go to rule two. So rule two says... Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. And Peterson starts with the observation that people take better care of their pets than they do of themselves, in particular with respect to the filling of prescriptions and the administering of prescription medication. People are way better at doing this with their pets than they are for themselves. So why is this? If you go to page 35 of his book, turning to now, Okay, so on page 35, he talks about, and he's had, you know, he has a whole discussion in here about order and chaos and um, the yin-yang symbol, and we talked a little bit about that last time. But, you know, there's this idea of trying to exist on this border perfectly between order and chaos, kind of having one foot 
in the things that you understand well and one foot in the things that you are trying to understand, this dichotomy between order and chaos. And so why is it that we would think low of ourselves and we would, for instance, treat our pets better than we treat ourselves? He says, it is our eternal subjugation to order and chaos. He says the first two of this triad. He says, that makes us doubt the validity of existence, that makes us throw up our hands in despair and fail to care for ourselves properly. And he says, it's a proper understanding of consciousness, which is the third element he's talking about on this page, a proper understanding of consciousness that allows us the only real way out. So he says, you know, this whole idea that we are trapped kind of in between order and chaos it's going to make us, this struggle of being, as he calls it, makes us doubt the validity of, of existence. We're going to throw our hands up in despair. Uh, what do you do? You're going to try to find meaning in your life using your faculty of consciousness. So if you go to page 44, he talks about you know, what you need to do is be in this state of being that's right between order and chaos, right in between the two parts of the yin-yang symbol. He says you need to place one foot in what you have mastered and understood and the other in what you are currently exploring and mastering. That, he says, is where meaning is to be found. And a lot of people have talked about this in different success literature, that you're in this optimal zone where you're challenging yourself just enough, but you're not overwhelming yourself. I was reading a book, um, listening to it on Audible. I think Hyatt is the guy's last name, Your Best Year Ever, and he talks about goal setting and how the proper type of goal is one that is you know, just challenging enough where you think, God, this is going to be a real stretch, but it's not so crazy that you think it's not possible that it's going to overwhelm you. So be right there and you will find meaning in your life. Now, then he goes into a, a discussion of the Garden of Eden because he wants to explain even more, and he wants to explain it from the perspective of these historical stories in biblical literature, why it is that we would think so lowly of ourselves that we wouldn't take care of ourselves as well as we would take care of our pets or take care of other people. And, you know, he talks about the whole Garden of Eden and Adam and he has some funny things to say about Adam because Adam is, you know, selling out Eve and blaming her and not even standing up and taking responsibility for his role in the, you know, being fallen and all this stuff. And so if you go then to page 53 of his book, he says, he says, why should anyone take care of anything as naked, ugly, ashamed frightened, worthless, cowardly, resentful, defensive, and accusatory as a descendant of Adam. So this is another reason why if you, you know, you're as a human being, if you have internalized this story of, you know, original sin and human beings being fallen because they have eaten from the tree of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when you actually look at everything that happened and how Adam disgracefully conducted himself after he had made this mistake of, following Eve and eating from the fruit himself, right? All of this. Yeah, this is this helps to explain why you would not want to take care of yourself. Finally, he 
says that a reason that you would not take care of yourself is that you recognize that as human beings, we're evil in a way that mere predatory animals aren't. And what does he say about this? He says on, this is on page 54 to 55, he points out that only man will inflict suffering for the sake of suffering. Only man will do that. So whereas, yeah, predatory animals, they will inflict all kinds of violence and suffering on each other. It's not for the sake of suffering. We are acutely aware of how we as human beings and therefore our fellow human beings are vulnerable to attack and destruction and everything else. And even though we do that, there are some people, some human beings who do inflict suffering for the sake of suffering. And that makes us evil. The fact that we have this ability to do it. He says uh, at the bottom of page 54, animals can't manage this inflicting suffering for the sake of suffering, he says, but humans with their excruciating, note that word, semi-divine capacities most certainly can. In other words, he says we have original sin. Uh, He says given the terrible capacity, that proclivity for malevolent actions, is it any wonder that we have a hard time taking care of ourselves or others or even that we doubt the value of the entire human enterprise. And he goes on to say that the person who's honest is going to realize that they have had some sort of fantasy that the world should be cleansed of all human presence. That's the phrase that he used, cleansed of all human presence. That's how bad you should think that human beings are, at least potentially. In other places in the book, he talks about the capacity for good in human beings and he praises it. And I'll get to that. But here he's quite negative. He says, well, you know, it's no wonder that you're not going to take care of yourself. Um, Then finally, the last reason that I understand him to be saying, you know, why we wouldn't do this is because some of us have what he calls an unwillingness to walk with God on page 58 He says, you know, if we wish to take care of ourselves properly, he says, we would have to respect ourselves, but we don't because we are, not least in our own eyes, fallen creatures. If we lived in truth, if we spoke the truth, then we would, we could walk with God once again and respect ourselves, others, and the world. Then we might treat ourselves like people we cared for. We might strive to set the world straight. We might orient it toward heaven where we would want people we cared for to dwell instead of hell, where our resentment and hatred would eternally sentence everyone. So basically he's saying that we have in us this idea that we need to live up to what God would want us to do. And when we recognize that we're fallen creatures, that we don't do that, that we are unwilling to live the life that religion demands of us, that's when we are going to fail to respect ourselves and therefore take care of ourselves. Um, So what's the solution? The discussion of the solution starts on page 59. And there he talks about that you should recognize, for example, that when Jesus Christ dies, he says this exists, quote, as an example of how to accept uh, finitude, betrayal, and tyranny heroically, how to walk with God despite the tragedy of self-conscious knowledge, 
and not as a directive to victimize ourselves in the service of others. So the first thing he wants to do is he says, yes, I understand that you've taken all these lessons from, um, you know, the Bible and, and from what happened to Christ and everything else. He says, but you shouldn't take his death as, you know, some sort of martyrdom call, like a call to martyrdom. You don't need to victimize yourself in the service of others. On the other hand, what you should see it as you just are accepting betrayal and, ty- and tyranny heroically. Um, then on page 60, he talks about that you actually do need to do good for yourself as well. Uh, for instance, he says, you know, in terms of God, you know, he says, you don't simply belong to yourself. You also in this received wisdom from religion all over the ages, you belong also to God. You know, he goes on in this discussion to express admiration for people. So this is not actually part of the solution, but it's part of you know him discussing it. He says, people are so tortured by the limitations and constraint of being. Being is this attempt to make order out of chaos that we all are engaged in, according to Peterson. He says, they're, they're so tortured by this. He says that I am amazed that they ever act properly or look beyond themselves at all. He says, no, what they are typically doing is not taking care of themselves. On page 62, he says that you are actually morally obliged to care for yourself. Why do you, you have a vital role to play in the unfolding destiny of the world. And why is that? Because if you were to um, not take care of yourself um, then everybody would just be brutally punished all the time this would basically make everything worse in the world in every way so so you should start taking care of yourself and start this idea that you take care of yourself you're going to take care of others you're going to make the world a better place and that is a path that's forward because if you don't then just everything's just going to get worse and that can't possibly be the path forward so what should you do What is the advice that you should actually follow? Consider, he says, what would truly be good for you. And you, in essence, sort of figure out what is, for example, your purpose. On 63, he quotes Nietzsche saying, he whose life has a why can bear almost any how. Um, You know, what sort of purpose could you fulfill in the world that, would help you, quote, shoulder your share of the load and give your life meaning. Uh, He says, if you devote your life to a purpose, he says that it would give you meaning with a capital M. It would justify your miserable existence, as he calls it, atone for your sinful nature, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the advice that he gives. You know, consider what would truly be good for you what would challenge you? He talks about that on page 62, 63. Um, and he says, what you need is a vision or a direction. You need a why. Because if you have the why, you can bear any how that there is. Um, you want to help direct your life more toward heaven and away from hell. So what are the philosophical problems that I have with this? Uh, first of all, on page 38, he is talking about the struggle to respond to chaos. And when he talks about the difficulties of dealing with chaos, there is 
some deterministic language there. He says, our brains respond instantly when chaos appears. With simple, hyper-fast circuits maintained from the ancient days when our ancestors dwelled in trees and snakes struck in a flash. Um, skipping down a little bit, he says, that, you know, the faster the response, when, you know, when this chaos appears, the faster the response, the more instinctive. So there's this hint again towards determinism here. Uh, another place where I disagree is he talks about the fact that we're fallen, that we have some sort of original sin. I myself, you know, I'm an atheist, so I would, you know, deny any of the the biblical story and everything else. But I, I certainly don't believe that we are born into this world with some sort of original sin. Later, he talks about children and are children born with temperaments that can make them easier or more difficult to raise and is that something that you have to take into account sure but the idea that somebody is actually born bad morally no you know i guess you'd say okay maybe there's some people who are born with a defect in their psyche that is so bad that the person no matter what kind of upbringing that that person's ever given they that that's a very outlying example and if they're actually born that way then it's not a, a moral issue it's not something that you're supposed to go around and carry right um, it, it's something that the other human beings in the world are going to have to deal with because this person would be a danger. But it's it, it's what you call a defense, you know, insanity defense, right? Uh, you know, when he talks about the fact that only man inflicts suffering for the sake of suffering, I quoted you that from page 54, and that this, you know, our recognition of this is something that makes us think less of ourselves. But think about the fact that not only as human beings are we the only ones who inflict suffering for the sake of suffering, but we also have the capacity to experience fun for the sake of fun, joy for the sake of joy, art, sex, all of those experiences that are things in themselves. Are we unique in that? You could talk about you know, animals. They play games. They appear to play and, and just be doing that as an end in itself. So maybe we're not totally unique in that, but I think we are unique in the ability to contemplate that certainly we're unique in the ability to create art which is this experience of you know an uplifting experience that you choose as as an experience in itself so you know he's focusing on the negative and and you could choose to focus on the positive he's very negative on human nature as i quoted you from page 55 very very pessimistic that you know the idea about the proclivity proclivity for malevolent actions that we supposedly have, a proclivity for it. Um, an emphasis on that is something that I would disagree with. And then when he talks, when he turns to the idea that you're going to nonetheless make a choice to preserve yourself, even though you think of yourself as a bad or unworthy in a certain way, the, the reason that you're supposed to preserve yourself is out of duty in some form, that you have a duty to preserve yourself, that it's um, you know, duty to other people to make the world better, but this also relies on religion or God as as the foundation for it. And so, philosophically, that would be the issue that I have. So, what do I, you know, what do I make out of this? What do I make out of this chapter? You know, can I go ahead and accept Peterson's advice? Right? You know, can I say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and treat myself at least as well as I treat my animals? At least as well. Maybe I should treat myself better than I treat my animals. And I think I think I do. I think I think I do. 
So, yes, what should you do? Yes, you should do in your own life what you need to to create meaning, finding a purpose. This is all good advice. But for your own sake, do it for the sake of those that you care for. You could say, yes, I do want to make the world a better place. And John Allison, the ex-CEO of BB&T, I don't know if he still serves in some sort of advisory or chairman role as well, but John Allison gave some great talks about this. And he always talks about, you know, that you would as a rational human being want to have as part of your goal, making the world a better place, but it's a selfish goal. It's not something that you're doing out of duty. Uh, Focus more when you look at your human nature on the capacity for joy. Uh, I have a friend, Kristen, she's a psychologist and she had commented on my other video and she had said that, yeah, in our psychology, there is this knee-jerk reaction to have like a fearful reaction. But you can choose, because you are a human being, to not just go along with whatever that knee-jerk reaction is telling you. You can choose to focus on the human capacity to do good, you know, to do good things, on the capacity for joy, you know, do we really have this proclivity to violence? And another place in the book that I'll get to, he talks about the fact that as we have become more civilized, that we uh, have become statistically less violent. So do we really have this, you know, this proclivity for malevolent violence? So what's the upshot? Yes, you can take his advice. Um, actually, let me say one more thing. Let me say one more thing that I had thought of. Uh, you know, what's the reason? What's the reason that you're not taking care of yourself? If I don't accept his reasons or explanations, which are based in the religious view of man as a fallen creature or the failure to walk with God, you can equally base it in you not having self-esteem, not having good self-esteem in a very secular sense, and you can do the things that are necessary to work on building your self-esteem. Does he give good advice about this? So he says, you know, for example, choose the thing that you can do to contribute to society. Now, are you trying to do it to contribute to society out of duty? No, maybe you're doing it because you want to make a living for yourself and the people that you care about and are responsible for, the dogs that you're responsible for. Um, you know, and, and you want to find the exact path that you can best, you know, in the book, he talks about cajoling yourself into being productive or whatever. It is true that if you, if you find that profession, occupation, that challenges you just enough, but doesn't overwhelm you, then you are going to create for yourself self-esteem because you're going to have confidence in your ability to provide value. So you pursue it, you go, you know, go ahead and articulate what that goal is and, and go down that path and reward yourself at appropriate steps along the way and everything else. So it's, so you can cash out. I think a lot of what he says about why a lot of people don't care for themselves in the sense of um, not having adequate self-esteem. Another thing of course is, what he does say, but I have a different answer to it. So what he does say is that they've internalized this duty ethics from Christianity. And that is one thing that he wants to divorce himself from. So the passage that I quoted you when he's talking about how to interpret the meaning of the 
you know, the crucifixion, the death of, of Christ. And he says, no, you know, you shouldn't interpret it in a way that you're supposed to be sacrificing yourself for everybody else. Instead, you should choose to interpret that as, you know, he's exhibiting heroic strength in the face of tyranny or whatever it is. Um, That's a, you know, a deliberative interpretive, a deliberate interpretive choice that he realizes that it would be reasonable for someone to take that episode, interpret it that way and come out with the idea that they have this duty to sacrifice themselves for others, even if they're quite good people. So, yeah, it could be because you think you're not a good person and it's not because of a failure to live up to a religious ethics, but it's a failure to live up to your own ethical standards. And then you do what you can do to correct that. And he's got good advice in the book. Uh, and it could also be because you have accepted the dominant morality, which is altruist that says that the good action is doing for others. Um, so yes, of course you can, take this advice and realize that you should treat yourself as somebody that you are responsible, not because it's even a duty to yourself, you know, as objectivists, we don't normally speak of saying, okay, you have a duty to yourself. You as an objectivist could recognize all the wonderful experiences that are possible to you in life. And as that, you know, have that as your motivation, not because it's some duty to preserve yourself as well. I think that's what I had to say there. Anything on chapter two? No? Okay, I don't have any questions. No comments there in chapter two. So let me go ahead on then to chapter three. Be friends with people who want the best for you. And this, I would say, the advice is more practical throughout. There's not as much in terms of presentation of biblical, philosophical material I think he believes that in the Rule 2 presentation that he's laid a lot of that foundation. In this chapter, he starts with stories of his childhood friends. He's got Chris and his cousin. Chris is a name he just you know, gave to preserve anonymity. And he talks about teenage parties and just how pointless and probably a little bit self-destructive that they were and how in the small town in Canada where he grew up, everybody had this sense of they just wanted to get out, and he was one of those people. Then he went through this process of making better friends. First in his small hometown, there were some newcomers who came in and they were pretty ambitious. And so when he started associating with them after his other friends had dropped out of school entirely, then he started himself being more ambitious and and more successful. And then he goes on to college and he had even better friends who were more ambitious and had even more success. Take a sip of coffee. Thanks to buttered coffee donors, by the way. Mm. Should I do that? Should I take sips of coffee while I'm on camera? Who knows? Um, So then, um, yeah, so then in college, he says, you know, even better friends and, and, you know, more ambitious and, and his life improved. And on page 73, he talks about the benefits that can come when you move, when you just move from one location to the next. So let me jump over to 73. Okay. Here we are. So if you move, he says, you get shaken out of your ruts. You can make new, better ruts with people aiming at better things. And he said, 
I thought that this was just a natural development. I thought that every person who moved would have this and want the same Phoenix-like experience. But that wasn't always the case. And then he goes on to talk about his old childhood friends, that when they were put into a new location with new surroundings, they just did their old normal self-destructive stuff, and he, and he couldn't understand it. So, yeah, not everybody does this. And so then he asked this question, why is it that people won't move or, you know, when they move, they don't take advantage of it the same way that he did or they won't change their friendships? On pages 74, bottom of 74 to top of 75, one of the things he talks about is he says, people differ in intelligence. He says, this is in large part the ability to learn and transform. People have very different personalities as well. He says, some are active and some are passive. Others are anxious or calm. He says, for every individual driven to achieve, there is another who is indolent. The degree to which these differences are immutably part and parcel of someone is greater than an optimist might presume or desire. So there's something within our natures, the amount of intelligence that we have, native or developed or otherwise, uh, and personalities, active versus passive, disposition, anxious versus calm, et cetera. This could affect us. Uh, another thing on page 76 that he starts talking about is that some people will continue to hang around with people that aren't any good for them because they feel like they have to rescue people who are damned, as he calls it. And he questions the wisdom of doing this, of course. On page 78, for example, he, talk, he, says, he asks this question. He says, how do you know that your attempt to pull someone up won't instead bring them or you further down? And he talks about the case of a well-meaning manager in a company who has a problematic employee and decides to move that person into the midst of a stellar team. And what happens to that team? Apparently the studies show that it brings everybody down. He says on page 79, the delinquency spreads not the stability. Okay. Um, so he says, you know, maybe you're well-meaning about this, but if you're well-meaning, you should question the fact whether you can do any good this way. The second thing he says about this, this idea that you're going to rescue the damned, he says it's also possible and perhaps more likely that you just want to draw attention to your inexhaustible reserves of compassion and goodwill. So, so you want to make this somehow about you, that you're this heroic person. Um, and that's, probably not a good thing either. Uh, another reason he says, maybe it's not because you are trying to rescue anybody. Maybe it's just because it's easier. It's the thing you've always done. It's the thing that you know. Um, and people just don't really talk about it or think about it. They just go on living a life like that unexamined. Uh, other reasons. Yeah. Okay. I gave you the other reasons on 79. So then what is the advice here? The advice starts there on page 80. He says, first, before you help someone, you should find out why the person is in trouble. If a person's in trouble, he says, skipping down, quote, it is far more likely that a given individual has just decided to reject the path upward because of its difficulty. And then on page 82, he says, here's something to consider. 
If you have a friend whose friendship you wouldn't recommend to your sister, your father, your son, why would you have such a friend for yourself? And he talks about the benefits of surrounding yourself with people who support you in your upward aim. He says, if you surround yourself with people who support your upward aim, they will not tolerate your cynicism and destructiveness. They will instead encourage you when you do good for yourself and others and punish you carefully when you do not. So that's the gist of the advice. Um, as I said, this is a much more concrete chapter in terms of a philosophical objection. I've got listed only one in my notes, and he talks about here on page 83, he, you know, when you're trying to rescue people, he says, um, oh, oh, actually, no, what he's talking about here. Oh, he's saying that if you are yourself trying to improve yourself, if you try to aspire upward, he says, you reveal the inadequacy of the present and the promise of the future. He says, then you disturb others in the depths of their souls where they understand that their cynicism and immobility are unjustifiable. And he says, you remind these other people that they ceased caring, not because of life horrors, life's horrors, which are undeniable. Again, so he's got that negativity about life. There's horror in life. Uh, life's horrors, which are undeniable, but because they do not want to lift the world up onto their shoulders where it belongs. So on the one hand, it's, you know, are you going to not care about life's horrors? Are you going to shoulder your duty to lift the world up on your shoulders? Is that really what you're supposed to be doing? You, you're, you're doing all these things so that you can lift the world up on your shoulders and do some sort of a duty. He, he's obviously torn with this, right? Because sometimes he does talk in, in these sort of terms about you have a duty to help make the world a better place in effect. But in other places, like I said, he was trying to get people to not interpret the story about Christ as you have a duty to go sacrifice yourself for everybody else. Instead, it's just you can contemplate what it looks like to suffer heroically under under tyranny. So he is conflicted on this. Each time that he talks about duty within here, I myself, as someone who rejects the idea of duty, even a duty to yourself, you're not going to do good things for yourself out of duty. It's because you want to enjoy all the good things that life has to offer. And the only way to do that is to live properly as a, a human being and therefore sustain your life. That's, this is where it's at. So I'm going to reject duty. Every time I see any hint of duty in this book, I look at it and say, okay, no, that's not why I'm going to take your advice here. So that, that's really the objection. Um, he gives you a, you know, a lot of good common sense advice about if you surround yourself with people who are equally ambitious, how that is going to reinforce you. I think that passage on page 82 and how it is that those people are going to treat you that's going to help you, you know, it gives you sort of the practical cash out of, of this advice. There's not, as I said, as much philosophy in, in that chapter. Any questions here? No, I don't see comments either on the Facebook or otherwise. Um, oh, I got a question. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and take a caller now. And then everybody can see what I was so excited about the other day that we have sound. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. Uh, John Kenny in Carson City. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you, John? Pretty good. Take a, take a sip of coffee. T take a sip of coffee? Anyway. Take, how about some water? Yeah. Have some, yeah. Okay. Okay. 
I'm, yeah, I'm like you know, over-amped, right? Okay. You know, I was just thinking about uh, Ayn Rand's uh, <clears throat> comments on Adam and Eve versus this fellow's Jordan Peterson. Do you remember, um, I think in Rourke's speech, he called uh, Adam a uh, smiling imbecile? I mean, that, that, Ooh, that, that's a great yeah. description. That's that's pretty nasty. I don't remember what the exact well, word okay, so was. Peterson doesn't Peterson doesn't think much of Adam though either, right? Well, but for for a different oh, oh but, but you, she's 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 talking about the uh, the the pre-fallen Adam though, right? The smiling imbecile is the one before he's right. eaten from the fruit. Okay, right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh boy, something's wrong with my phone here. I don't know whether I'm running out of power or what. But anyway, she's got some other. Uh, commentaries like uh, Adam was a, a pre-moral figure. Well, no, I'm sorry. He was a moral figure in that he could make a choice between good and evil. Oops. Yes, and so why is uh, it that somehow that makes us fallen, right? Why would that yeah, be? Yeah, yeah. Well, she was yeah. absolutely against the doctrine of original sin, which which I agree with. Um, let's see, what else? Adam and Eve... Uh, Anyway, I think oh I'm sorry. The I think if Ayn Rand were reading this book, she wouldn't get past twenty because she would see some fundamental uh things in metaphysics and epistemology in which Jordan Peterson is off on the wrong track and anything he says beyond that is wrong, you see. And I think she'd probably just toss the book after about twenty pages, is my guess. But you think? I mean okay. Okay, I un- I understand, and I'll go ahead yeah. and um, you said you're having trouble with your phone, so I'll go ahead and and put you back well, on the whole thing. beeping here. I yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no something's problem. Beeping here. Okay. okay, no problem. So no, thanks for ca- thanks for calling, John, and I'll go ahead and comment on that a little bit. So, you know, again for me, and I, I talked about this at, at more length last time. I feel like I'm a person who had sort of my basic philosophical mindset, very basic at age 12. And then the goal was, you know, first of all, I was happy to discover Ayn Rand because her ideas were consistent with the basic philosophical mindset as I had developed it so far, so rudimentary, just so basic, um, and helped me explore a whole lot of issues. I did have some things that I needed to work through, determinism and all, you know, there's all those questions you have to ask, right? Free will versus determinism was a big one. I remember talking about with my four, my poor friend uh, Brian Yoder decades ago. I remember arguing about <laughs> getting my way through it. So there's there is some you know philosophy to learn as well, but at the same time the you know philosophy itself is not enough to live life. There's health advice and there's psychology as well. And for me, I feel like he offers advice that is good and is, you know, resonates with me. And he tells stories that are good ways of sort of couching the advice. And he has a lot of concretes from his own experience in his practice and, and other examples. I, I just find him valuable as a good storyteller. And then I think that he is providing some good advice that can be divorced from those foundations. Rand might say, hey, you know, I don't need this particularly. I don't know. There's a lot of other objectives that would say, hey, I don't need this particularly. And given that he does say some very pessimistic things, you know, I mean, so, you know, if I, if I back up, I say, okay, well, what is it that 
I say overall, you know, in terms of the the problems that he has. Let me go to my notes where I had this. As I said, my my whole disclaimer all the time is that I'm operating on two hours of sleep here. But let me find what I have. Yeah. So overall, the you know the problems that I have with him as a underlying theme is he invalidates consciousness, or at least undermines it. Because he's kind of vague when he's talking about our consciousness and how powerful it is and our, its ability to guide our lives. His conviction that life is suffering to such a degree, you know, the, the emphasis on pain, on, on the, you know, that it's miserable. And then finally, this idea of human beings being bad or, you know, bad to such a, an extent. He, he does also talk about the goodness in human beings as well. Uh, you know, but he talks about having to redeem us. There, the the idea of original sin and the emphasis on the negative in our natures or the capacity to do evil, is to me um, not justified. So those are the the three things um, about you know who we are. Now, in terms of his advice, a lot of his advice is duty based. Uh, take care of yourself because of duty. Take care of yourself because of God. Shoulder the burden. Uh, make more heaven, less hell. Um, I would reject anything that comes out of duty as well. So those those are overall my main objections with him philosophically. But again, I think that there's advice that he provides that you can internalize well because of the stories that he tells. So he, he's an excellent storyteller and he's funny. And this book is really well written. I think I saw only one typo in everything that I've read so far. You know, I could have miss something else but it's really well written and precise the stories are entertaining i was laughing at some of the stuff in the parenting chapter for example uh, i recommend it i mean i get value from it and again it's it's not like you have to come to a book and say oh well i'm not firm in my convictions and so that's the reason that i'm going to get value from this i i have no knowledge at all and so that's how i'm going to get value from this it's you know, do you feel that you have something to learn or internalize better from this field of psychology? And I feel like I do. And then, you know, also, do you think that you can take what he has to offer and integrate it into your philosophical framework and context of knowledge? And again, I feel like I can, that I can take some of this advice that he gives. So that's a little bit of a long-winded answer. God, we, we have 20 minutes, so let me go into rule four. I want to get through enough of it. I'm only doing an hour and a half today, and I'll do another hour and a half on Friday to get through this if I need to. If I need to rush a little more, I will. Uh, so rule four says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. And he starts out in the chapter saying, no matter how good you are at whatever it is that you're doing, there's someone else out there who makes you look incompetent. And everybody has this debilitating inner critic within them that's going to keep them very aware of this fact that there's these other people. And he says, look, everybody has this inner critic that can, in effect, paralyze you, and it should be dismissed. He goes on to say, of course, we do need standards of better and worse, right? If we didn't have a standard of better or worse, then, for example, I wouldn't be spending my time talking to you right now. I think this is a good use of my time. So, you know, if you didn't have standards, then you couldn't make any decisions in life at all. But at the same time, 
you shouldn't judge yourself about, you know, by the standard of whether you are the best in whatever field it is. If I said, okay, I'm going to judge myself as to whether I'm the best in this podcasting, offering, live stream presentations, I would never do it. You can't. Um, and so he says a couple things on, on the, he says there are what he calls many good games. So whatever game you decide you're going to play, suppose there's a game and you're playing it. He calls them games. It could be a profession, but you're playing it and you're not, you're not happy with how you're doing in it. And you're comparing yourself to other people. He says, first of all, you could choose a, an entirely different game. So there's a, there's many different good games. He says, there's not just one game at which to succeed or fail. It's on page 88 of his book. He says, the world allows for many ways of being. If you don't succeed at one, you can always try another. Then further, you know, in terms of you being critical of yourself, he asked you to consider something else. He says, it's also unlikely that you're playing only one game. He says, you might consider judging your success across all the games you play. So, you know, what, all the different games, what are the different roles that you play in your life? And, you know, maybe you shouldn't judge your performance in this one particular role because you can, you know, take into account the fact that you perform not only that role, but you perform these other roles that people who might be better at that one role aren't playing. So judge yourself across all of them. Growing, he says, just growing as a person might be the most important form of winning. So he encourages you to judge yourself by a different standard. He says, if we compare ourselves to others, and I'm paraphrasing from him, he says, it might kill the motivation to do anything at all. It might be proper, he says, and this is on page 89, to compare yourself to others if you're young, because he says that when people are young, they're neither individual yet, nor are they really informed. But later, he says you become someone who is individual, who is unique. And he talks about this in a few places in the book. He says, as you develop into an adult human being, you leave the house ruled by your father. He says you rediscover the values of your culture and that this is going to lead to you finding meaning in life. So this is another explanation of what he means by finding meaning in life. On page 89, he says, we must rediscover the values of our culture veiled from us by our ignorance, hidden in the dusty treasure trove of the past, rescue them and integrate them into our lives. This is what gives existence its full and necessary meaning. So what is it that you should do, right? You're, you're going to have this idea of picking a game that is good for you because there's many good games. You're going to also have the idea of when you judge yourself, not just based on your performance of the one game, but across all the games that you play uh, and judge yourself as an individual. So what should you do if you're going to judge yourself as an individual and not compare yourself to others? Because he says, as you get older, you're an individual. It's no longer appropriate to do that. Um, so first of all, he says, and this is, I've mentioned it a little briefly earlier. He says, you should learn how to entice yourself into sustainable productive activity um, you know do you negotiate fairly with yourself etc what you try to do he says is determine the nature of your moral obligation to yourself 
again, I wouldn't speak in terms of moral obligation to myself, but that is the way that he puts it. Uh, He says also when you're trying to figure out how you're going to do this, how you're going to judge yourself against yourself and go on a path of self-improvement versus judging yourself against others, one of the things he says you should do is consult the emotion of resentment. If you're experiencing resentment, he says it always means one of two things, and this is on page 91. He says either the resentful person is immature, in which case he should shut up, quit whining, and get on with it, or he says there is tyranny afoot, in which case the person subjugated has a moral obligation to speak up. He says, when you have something to say, silence is a lie and tyranny feeds on lies. So you should do that as well. Um, again, he talks about the progression, you know, what you do when you're a child, then you have to leave your parents and then become part of the group. And then when you're a group, you come just the right amount different from any, anybody else, but you're going to be different from other people. So he says, be cautious when you're comparing yourself to others. You're a singular being once you're an adult. Have your own particular specific problems, financial, intimate, psychological, and otherwise. So what do you do? You take stock in yourself. Uh, At first he talks about the fact that we are able to imagine things that don't exist right now. And sometimes if we, you know, see things that aren't there or imagine how things could be better, we might end up feeling bad about ourselves. But he says, no, we should turn this ability to envision a future or imagine things as they aren't currently now, we should turn it to our benefit. He says, how can we benefit from our imaginativeness, our ability to improve the future without continually denigrating our current insufficiently successful and worthless lives? Listen to that language. We have worthless lives. He says, first, what do you do? You take stock. You take this inventory about yourself. And you try to figure out, again, you're trying to improve yourself and compare yourself to yourself, not to anybody else. He says, you should ask yourself this question. How can you start your renovations without being demoralized? Uh, He says, or even crushed by your internal critics' lengthy and painful report of your inadequacies. And what he suggests, he says, if you call upon your internal critic properly, your internal critic will suggest, and this is on page 94, by the way, on 94, he says, the internal critic will suggest something to set in order, which you could set in order, which you would set in order voluntarily without resentment, even with pleasure. And this is where it gets funny. And I, you know, I feel like, okay, let me read it to you because his book is fun. There's a lot of laughs that you'll get out of it. And some of the things that he makes you laugh about, maybe the advice that he's offering isn't always novel, but to the extent that he tells you a good story and he gets you to laugh about the advice, it can disrupt you enough to sort of take it in and internalize it in a way that you haven't before. So that's, again, part of the value I think that he provides. This is what he says. You know, you're talking to yourself, right? So you've decided that there's something that you could do to improve your life. You're inter- you consulted your internal critic. You've decided this thing. You're trying to get yourself to do it. This is how you do it. This is the dialogue you have with yourself per Peterson on page 94. He says, excuse me, you might say to yourself without irony or sarcasm. I'm trying to reduce some of the unnecessary suffering around here. I could use some help. And then he says, keep derision at bay. Continuing, this is you talking to yourself. I'm wondering if there is anything that you would be willing to do. I'd be very grateful for your service. Ask honestly with humility, etc. 
And then, you know, you, so you negotiate with yourself and you get yourself to do something to improve your circumstance. It could be some small thing and you bargain with yourself. You offer yourself a reward. He suggests, you know, you like espresso, give yourself an espresso. He says, get yourself to do whatever it is and then make sure you reward yourself. Don't like do the thing that you're, you know, do your taxes. It's like, oh, I got these taxes. I got to fit. If you finish them, give yourself the reward you promised yourself. Don't then feel like you have to go do something else and something else, you know, really reward yourself. And then you're going to get yourself in a better direction. Page 95 towards the bottom, he says, 500 small decisions, 500 tiny actions compose your day and every day. Could you aim one or two of these at a better result? Better in your own private opinion by your own individual standards. So he says you can set a goal for yourself. By the end of the day, I want things in my life to be a tiny bit better than they were this morning. If you remember, I did that show and I was paraphrasing Peterson's advice about this note to my younger self, hold my beer. You know, so, you know, you don't hold, tell somebody else, hold your beer, but you give it to your younger self and say, hold my beer. I'm going to go do this awesome stuff. And he talks about the fact that you can really transform your life over a scale of three years, for example, completely change it, revolutionize it. If you do this on a daily basis, um, Then he has this foray in chapter four about, you know, the fact that our perception can deceive us. So whatever it is that we're aiming on is the, or whatever our goal is, is going to determine what we see. And there's these psychological studies that um, people were asked to watch a video and they were asked to count the number of times that one team passed a ball to the other team, something like that. And because they were watching it and, you know, with that particular goal and counting and stuff, they didn't see some gorilla that walked through the screen. It was like right there and they didn't see it. So what he says at the bottom of page 97, we triage when we see. We save the phobia, some part of our visual apparatus, for things of importance. He says if something you're not attending to pops its ugly head up in a manner that directly interferes with your narrowly focused current activity, you will see it. Otherwise, it's just not there. And otherwise, he says, what do you, how do you deal with the overwhelming complexity of the world? He says, you ignore it while you concentrate minutely on your private concerns. So here he's saying that, you know, we have this natural tendency to restrict what we're willing to see as possibility in the world because of our current aim. And he's encouraging you to adopt perhaps a different aim or or at least make yourself consciously open to a different type of aim for your life. And he gives an example of something like, you know, you want your boss's job in his office or something, and maybe you just need to give that up and think about, I would have as a goal, whatever is going to make my life better. Top of page 99, he says, perhaps what you really need is right in front of your eyes, but you cannot see it because what of what you are currently aiming for. Um, and he, you know, he talks about in, in effect that through our, this visual ability, and then he says, even through our abstract thoughts that we narrow our focus and that we should, you know, in effect allow different possibilities in the middle of page 100. Uh, it called to mind for me, Katy Perry's song firework. 
he says, you know, you've had this goal and, and it's making you unhappy pursuing it. He says, so you let go. He says, you make the necessary sacrifice and allow a whole new world of possibility hidden from you because of your previous ambition to reveal itself. He encourages people to do this. You know, again, if you're banging your head against a, a wall, then yes, you should do this. Uh, he says, this will only work, however, if you genuinely want your life to improve. And he says, be cautious. Making your life better means adopting a lot of responsibility. It takes more effort and care than living stupidly in pain and remaining arrogant, deceitful, and resentful. You know, that, that's how you're going to be if you stay where you are. He says, if we, and this is the middle page 101 that I'm about to read right now. Middle of page 101, he says, if we start aiming at something different, something like, quote, I want my life to be better, our minds will start presenting us with new information. Then we can put that information to use and move and act and observe and improve. Okay, so we can do this. Um, okay, uh, so yeah, so change what you're after. Commit to making your life even better. Then he goes into a section again on religion and how religion affects us, the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. He tries to tell me I'm not an atheist, etc. cetera. Um, and that, of course, is where I lose him. But what is he doing in the, in the section on religion? He is trying to get people to see that if they decide that the things that are going on in their life that they aren't happy about are maybe because of them and they could choose to consciously improve their own lives and that this would um, make them not, for example, think that it's the world that is is to blame, um, that you would actually feel like you could go ahead and do something to improve your life if you would, um, you know, reject the idea of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. What does it mean then to make your life better? Um, on page 107, he starts talking about this. You know, at, at first, and actually, let me say one more thing because I wasn't really happy with how I finished off that last point. Um, the, the Old Testament God, the way that the, the you know everything life in the Old Testament is depicted, he talks about you know that it's there's tragic irrationalities, and that these always exist. And what you have to make is in his mind, he says an equally irrational commitment to the essential goodness of being. So you have to make a commitment to the idea that if you behave properly, then you will be able to make being better, that it's going to reveal itself to be essentially good, even though it seems like there's all of this tragedy. So what do you do? He says, you don't think, you know, he says, rationality is going to give you a narrowness of view. Don't maneuver and calculate and scheme and et cetera, et cetera. Again, pay attention. He says, what you should do is pay attention. Search until you find something that bothers you, that you could fix, that you would fix, and then fix it. He doesn't want you to get all caught up in what's the justification for good or evil or anything else. He just wants you to find something that you could fix, fix it. Ask every day. Here's the key question. What could I do that I would do to make life a little better? Um, and if you keep asking this question and you keep improving yourself over a matter of years, then 
and he gives a good summary of what your life could be like if you do this every single day. If you say, okay, what could I do that I would do to make my life a little better by my own standards? He says, instead of playing the tyrant, you're paying attention. Telling the truth instead of manipulating the world. Negotiating instead of playing the martyr or the tyrant. You no longer have to be envious because you no longer know that somebody else truly has it better. You know, he talks about how do you know that somebody else's life is that much better? You don't live their life. Uh, you no longer have to be frustrated because you've learned to aim low and to be patient. Is aiming low so good, et cetera, right? Who knows? You're discovering who you are, what you want, and what you are willing to do. So that's the approach. Now, can you internalize this on a rational foundation as opposed to his religious foundation? Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be running out of time here, and that's something I'm going to have to get into and I promised you guys I was going to get to OPAR, too, and I did not get to OPAR. The thing that I will talk about in the last show on this, which I'm going to do Friday, I'm going to do it at the same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, and we'll go again for an hour and a half at least. Maybe I'll sign up for two hours just to make sure we get through. But in OPAR, Leonard Peikoff talks about the crucial error that he's making at all the different levels, the idea that our perception our consciousness, our reason has a particular nature, a nature that he fleshes out in psychological terms. And he's got data to tell you, you know, the serotonin mechanism and how it is, you know, there's this study that said you didn't see the gorilla, see your visions deceiving you and all of these things. Um, our consciousness does have a nature. Yeah, we do try to be efficient when we look at our surroundings and focus on the things that we're aiming for and stuff. But he's giving us advice about how to deal with that, how to use our free will to get around it. Rand talks about the fact that in order to be conscious at all, we have to be conscious somehow. It has to have a nature. That is not an argument against consciousness, and it's not an argument against everything that we do with consciousness reasoning. So I've got only 10 seconds. i got to go. Thank you for tuning in. We will finish on Friday. I'm going to do everything possible to get through a lot faster. Thanks. Talk to you then. I'm going to end the blog talk and then I'll end the video stream. Here we go.